This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Good morning, Susan. It's great to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Great to be with you. And returning to the roundup is the fantastic, the fabulous Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Welcome back, Lucy. Good morning. Good to see you both. On this week's roundup, we'll take a look at three of President Biden's recent speeches, the impact they're having, and the reactions to them. Dr. Fauci's hot mic and the COVID messaging challenges the administration is facing. The reaction to Republican Senator Mike Brown saying the 2020 election was fair. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about how Democrats can win the disinformation war. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Let's dig in. Last week, President Biden spoke from Statuary Hall in the United States Capitol on the one-year anniversary of the attack on the Capitol. In his remarks, Biden laid blame at the feet of the former president, as he calls him. Here's some of what he said. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob reached the Capitol. But they failed. They failed. My fellow Americans, in life there's truth, and tragically there are lies. Lies conceived and spread for profit and power. We must be absolutely clear about what is true and what is a lie. And here's the truth. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest, and because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He can't accept he lost. 
even though that's what 93 United States senators, his own attorney general, his own vice president, governors and state officials in every battleground state have all said he lost. That's what 81 million of you did as you voted for a new way forward. He has done what no president in American history, the history of this country has ever, ever done. He refused to accept the results of an election and the will of the American people. In the speech, Biden called for a new chapter in American history, where January 6th doesn't mark the end of democracy, but the beginning of a renaissance of liberty and fair play, as he put it. What did you both make of the speech in Statuary Hall? Susan, why don't you begin? This was different from the pro forma style Biden is uh, ha- has been leading with. Absolutely. And he very carefully started to bring politics into his speeches. He had been trying to avoid direct conflict with the former president um, in their hopes, I think, to unite the country. And what we saw was he was now um, on January 6th saying, like, stop it. We have, you know, we've got to move forward and we've got to recognize where the problem comes from. Um, And what's also interesting, and we'll get into it, is how that provided the first building block of, I think, his voting rights speech later, you know, a week later. So I thought it was very well thought out in that regard. Um, I heard a very good analysis of it, though, because it did seem to go on. Someone had said, you know, he tried to bring the country and and, and, and play to their, their goodness. Um, and if you look at Gettysburg, it was 300 words. It took Joe Biden 3,000 words, and he still didn't quite get there. And it wasn't a comparison to Gettysburg, just the need for brevity, perhaps, to make his points a little more clear. Lucy, what did you take? I think that we finally saw a version of Joe Biden that a lot of us have been calling for, which is, I think, to really suspend the notion that we can still exist in a cultural paradigm where we think that one day Republicans are going to wake up and it's just going to be business as usual. And that, you know, we're this nation where we just hope everyone tries to get along and we just, you know, love thy neighbor when in fact your neighbor has a let's go Brandon sign in the in his front yard and is you know using the the Santa Claus uh, White House Christmas calls to tell Joe Biden to go f himself right so so I think that in a way we finally saw a, a version of Joe Biden that I hope we see a lot more of as Susan said it seems to have been the the entree into this expanded discussion of of really getting something done on on voting rights and. There's a there's a piece in the New York Times this week where uh, it's it's by some career government um, folks where they talk about this idea that um, you have to really get people united against something in a, in a way and they talk about the the idea that we have to start thinking the unthinkable about what is happening and where we're headed and they bring up the idea of uh, in the 20th century how the U.S., how we talked about the Cold War, right? And people who grew up in that generation remember doing drills in schools and really feeling like the threat was so imminent. And people think a lot of that culture was how we held off 
a, you know, a, a really terrible uh, military conflict with the former Soviet Union. And so I think that when we think about this in, in that kind of frame, we can start to see that maybe it is very effective and, and uh, well-timed to start talking about the, the threat of not just Trump, but the ongoing trappings of, of the Republican and conservative movement now and, and take it on head on instead of hoping that, that cooler heads prevail and that Mitt Romney and Ben Sass can save us all. Yeah. Susan, last night, uh, I was visiting with a good friend of ours, familiar to the show, Lene Erickson. And one of the things that we, you know, had some commiseration over was this realization that, uh, to us, us on this podcast, our politicology listeners, we in DC who recognize what happened on January 6th, there's an emotional valence to that day and its and its anniversary that is more like 9-11 to us than uh than 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 anything else. But that is very specific to a small number of people, specifically here in DC and politicos who pay attention and and maybe anybody else who really understands the underpinnings of the system that we have. And that isn't the way most Americans are thinking about this. January 6th is just another day for them. And so I wonder what your read is on how effective it's going to be that Biden highlighted Trump as a threat to democracy during this speech and what he was trying to do with that, given that he also recognizes that most Americans, sadly, do not recognize the significance of that day. Well, I think Biden coming into office really hoped that the country would unite against fighting COVID which was not a partisan issue. I mean, it turned out to be in some ways, but the, the, the virus itself attacked Republicans and Democrats and independents. And he was probably just floored that he could not get the support that was needed to get just some money to people. I mean, this was like a no brainer, right? Like come together. So if you couldn't come together and find a unifying measure for the general public, to fight something that was literally killing us. I think that when you look through the lens of communication at January 6th and, and relating it to everybody, I don't know how you get that, that threat to democracy um, to really resonate with people. And I think that's part of the issue that is complicating the Voting Rights Act and the talk about January 6th is that it's very much a not even 30,000 feet, like 100,000 feet above ground, because most people believe you can go vote. Okay, so this threat to democracy, when you talk about it in these terms, people are literally not being turned away from voting. That is not to say that there is not voter suppression and that it's going to be at an all-time high because of these horrible voter suppression laws that are now in the books. That's not to say we're even going to see something in some ways worse. We're going to see voter nullification with some states allowing their elected officials to overturn results of, of elections that have been certified by local officials. So it is big and it is important that we talk about it, but we also need to start messaging what it means to 
not being able to vote and the fairness of it. I think that's where Americans can still come together on, on common fairness. You know, in my head this morning, I started thinking, I had an ad come to mind. I was like, imagine two kids going with their parents off to vote. And one goes to like the suburban school and the parents go in, they come in and blah, blah, blah. They go vote and they're off to school. And then the other parent goes with their child and they're waiting online. And they're still waiting online. And what the kid's thirsty and can't get any water and is waiting online. I mean, it shows the disparity and the lack of fairness. It's also, but you need to kind of really bring that down. Like, what is this broken democracy is about? You've got to make it relatable because people are still voting in elections since 2020. They're voting in school board elections, Virginia, um, New Jersey. There's special elections almost every Tuesday somewhere in this country. So they have to break it down to what is what does it mean when you say there's a real threat to our democracy? And I think Lucy was kind of talking about that a little bit, like bringing that to, to, to the corner, if you will, and, and, and sh- getting that message through of the importance of January 6th in its big way. And maybe that's what we talk about on podcasts and in the media. And I think, honestly, history will be the one to judge the importance of January 6th as such an important moment as um, of November, uh, September 11 or Pearl Harbor. But in those two circumstances, that was we felt we were attacked by an enemy from the outside. And and half of the people don't think the other half are the enemy. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like they are. So that that can't unify us. Yeah. So in a nutshell, what what was he trying? What was he hoping to get out of this? Because I get the point of using a, using the day to commemorate this horrific you know event, uh, which is appropriate completely, even though so many people don't recognize it. But was that was that in and of itself the purpose, or was he hoping to get something out of this? He, I think the point of this speech was he had to recognize it there because there were being memorials and everything. But the sole goal of this speech was to throw a punch at Trump for the first time. Hmm. That's what he that's what everyone talked about. That's what he achieved. It wasn't a call to action by any means. And it wasn't very mournful. So I think it was, again, like I said, a building block um, of political action. Also last week. Biden addressed the latest jobs report and the economy. The unemployment rate fell to 3.9% in December, which is the sharpest one-year drop in unemployment in U.S. history, which is a big deal. It's also the first time the unemployment rate has been under 4% in the first year of any presidential term in 50 years. Biden also highlighted the economic successes of his first year in office, but also talked about what his administration is going to do to respond to growing inflation. Here's what he said about that. Because, you know, I know that even as jobs and families' incomes have recovered, families are still feeling the pinch of prices and cost. So we're taking that on as well. And that's the, and the way to do that is not to step back from the economic progress we've made, but to build on it. I've laid out a three-part plan to address costs families are facing. One, first part of that plan fixing the supply chain. Two, protecting consumers and promoting competition. Three, lowering kitchen table costs, including with my Build Back Better Act. So 
Lucy, I've brought this up multiple occasions. Uh, this was the first time that I've seen the president or anyone on behalf of the administration lead with, we feel your pain and here's what we're going to do about it. That's basically, that's exactly what he did. Finally, for the first time. Um, we know inflation is going to be one of the biggest struggles Americans are facing and are going to face throughout the year. Uh, it's going to be central to the midterms. Um, how effective do you think this approach is? Do you, th- do you think they're finally Biden is finally uh, going to address this head on? And do you think it's going to matter or is it a little bit too late? You know, everyone talks about the how we're at a 40 year high for inflation, and that's certainly not good. But we also don't talk a lot about how uh, presidents come through those times. Right. I mean, I think a lot of Republicans have tried to lay a lot of the inflation of the early 80s at the at the feet of people like Jimmy Carter. But it was not until 1982 that we saw an all time high in inflation and Ronald Reagan won re-election. So, look, the plural of anecdote is not data. But I think that, as you say, in the kind of Clinton school of politicking, I feel your pain goes a long way to to quell anxieties. It, 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 politics is like human psychology. People just want to be, it is human psychology. People just want to be heard and want to know that this is, that this is on the radar of the, of, of the mind and on the minds of, of candidates and elected officials whose, whose lives look very different than theirs from theirs. And so I, I think that, that Biden is potentially putting himself in a position where as ongoing legislation about either continued spending or or other, uh, you know, whether or not um, whether or not Build Back Better gets taken up again, we'll see. But but he is at least working to try to position Democrats and the Democratic agenda as one that is aware of these of these kitchen table issues ahead of midterms. Susan, he actually said, and here's what I'm going to do about it. <laughs> Do you think this is, first of all, do you think that's going to matter? Do you think the, his his three steps uh, are actually going to lead to lower prices and an ease of the pain that people are feeling at the gas pumps, at the meat counter, et cetera? Um, or is the rhetoric enough? Is simply acknowledging the, the pain and the fear um, enough to score him some points? Well, I guess the good news is, is he's no longer saying it's transitory. So <laughs> that's good <laughs> because it's not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And we have to look to see that the Fed raises rates. It's only going to be part of the solution. So that's where it works. But that being said, this is what I'm going to do about it is great. As long as it starts to at least if the, these three acts, the supply chain competition and kitchen table issues will not fix the situation, but at least it looks like you're working on something. And what I liked about this speech, even better than the one he gave on January 6th, is that he also talked about kitchen table issues when he was, what he was really trying to talk about was build back better, but he broke build back better into three basic things, child care, prescription drugs, and healthcare. So those three things, if that's all you're going to focus on, that's great. Yeah. Like that, those are kitchen table, you know, issues. Everyone can say that I support that and I can repeat it back to you. So. That was, I thought, a really good speech. And yes, I feel your pain. I think it's a little bit of, again, going into this building block of politics. It brings back Joe from Scranton. Yes. Yeah. 
so yeah, that's ex- you know what to what Lucy was saying. That's and actually, when Lucy said it, is exactly when I thought of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have a plan, but so thank you, Lucy. Um, but that's that's who people connected to. Yeah, and I think that was probably the most productive part of the speech. But will those things actually help inflation? No, but it's okay to say that you're going to work on stuff. Yeah, but again, perception is reality. And you have to at least begin by recognizing that whether or not you're feeling the pinch of inflation, as he put it, pinch, right? Uh, At least you know now the president of the United States recognizes that it is happening. And he's not trying to deny it, right? He's not not pretending that uh, to live in an alternate reality. It's here. We know it sucks. And here's what I'm going to do about it. I just, that's, I'm, Sad it took him this long. I'm glad he finally did it, and I hope it works. For our third in this Biden speech trifecta on Monday, he went to Georgia to stump for voting rights legislation. He highlighted the new attempts to subvert the will of the people by controlling elections officials. He pushed for both the Freedom to Vote Act, which has protections for local elections officials, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. He also called on the Senate to reform the filibuster if that's what it takes to pass the bills, which is the boldest he's been so far on the filibuster. Here's that clip. We have 50-50 in the United States Senate. That means we have 51 presidents. You all think I'm kidding. I've been pretty good at working with senators my career. But man, when you got 51 presidents, it gets harder. Anyone can change the outcome. Sadly, the United States Senate, designed to be the world's greatest deliberative body, has been rendered a shell of its former self. Gives me no satisfaction in saying that as an institutionalist, as a man who was honored to serve in the Senate. But as an institutionalist, I believe the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. Debate them. Vote. Let the majority prevail. And if that bare minimum is blocked, we have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this. Lucy, does Joe Biden coming out in favor of filibuster reform at least in the strongest way he has so far, shift the debate around the issue in the Senate? Or is this just uh, a lot of, as he would put it, malarkey? (laughs) Well, let me first say that I think the line about 51 presidents is incredibly stupid (laughs) and just a terrible thing to say. And it's a terrible thing to say. It's not cute. It's it's a terrible thing to say because he is creating, creating a permission structure for senators to justify really not being on board with his agenda at all. Oh, you have 51 presidents? Okay, you are basically saying, you know, come on, Kirsten Cinema, keep doing what you're doing. You're basically so saying I'm powerless. Was, well, plus 51 means his VP has more of a weight over this than he does. I mean, the 51st is the <laughs> VP. That should be a given. Like, She's going right. along with the agenda. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And and I think as we discussed in, in thinking about his other speeches this week, Joe Biden is at his best when he comes out really strong. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking this week, why are we still talking about the Senate as being um, split? It's not split. It is not split. Democrats have control of the Senate, period. So Joe Biden should be saying, 
Democrats have control of the Senate. We are in charge here. The American people elected us to be in charge, and we are going to do what we want while we are in power, which we are. And what we want to do is pass comprehensive voting rights uh, bills by any means necessary. And if that means that we have to get rid of an archaic rule that is designed for a different time when we expect for the folks on the other side of the of the aisle to be reasonable, which they are no longer, then we'll get rid of it. And we will get rid of that because we think that your voice, you, uh, people in the audience in Georgia watching this speech or people who are voting in Nevada or people who are trying to go to the polls in Michigan, we think that your voice and amplifying your votes and your voices is more important than whatever held tradition, uh, you know, a hundred mostly old white guys in the U.S. Senate care to perpetuate. And the filibuster is a is a relic of an older time, and it is a a relic of an era in which we were trying to suppress <laughs> suppress mm. power of broader of 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 a broader um, constituency. So I think that. That's the only card there is to play here. Um, and and yeah, I, I think that was I think that was a I think that was a miss. Not to mention the fact, if I may just say, that Democrats, I'm sorry to to make anyone feel sad here or disappointed, but they have just they have just blown it on voting rights. First of all, as we've talked about, should have done it on January 21st, 2021. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> because if it's as as Susan <sighs> said. We have we're having elections all the time, right? Yes. Where where is this? What about those elections? Should have been the first so thing on the agenda. Yeah, is it urgent or is it not urgent? And now we're suddenly taking it up, and now it's like we, you know, in for example, in the January sixth speech, like so, we have to this entree to voting rights, as we said. Okay, but then why are neither of the two bills that you've put forward actually getting at the core of the issue? Which yes, it's good to make sure there's no subversion of people's attempts to vote or attempts to disenfranchise people. We should make it easy. But you know what neither of these pieces of legislation do? Neither address whatsoever certification of elections, which, as we may recall from January 6, 2021, that would be 15 days before we should have done something about this, was the main play of Republicans yes. to try to overthrow our government. <laughs> so... I don't have good things to say about Democrats on this front I, at this moment. Oh my Amen. gosh. <laughs> Seriously, like all the, what do we do? What do we do? Snap? Is that all the snaps <laughs> to that? Because, oh my God. You know, if, if, if Democrats cared a little bit more about winning and controlling a balance of power at the national level, this would have been the first thing that they would do. Otherwise, like, I'm sorry, but take a picture and frame it, put it on your wall of this fleeting moment that you actually control both houses because it isn't going to happen for a long time. Well, I also think that what went into that was all this hot air that was blown about in Washington, thinking like he had a referendum. He had this great majority to go into. He had control of both houses. You can go do greatness and FDR stuff. No, you had a very razor thin majority. So do what you can. Um, COVID relief was obviously an easy no brainer and he had to deal with that. But as far as policy issues beyond, I couldn't agree with Lucy Moore. I mean, it should have been front and center. It should have happened January 21st. And the fact that now they're talking about it. Eh, OK, that's great. I will say, though, 
this was like the third building block on the political message. And there was something he said that I happen to really like. Go. And that was instead of calling Trump the former president, he said the defeated president. And it's nuanced. But basically, when he used that term, he said, why are all these Republicans following this defeated Mm. president? And that really kind of resonated to me. Plus, bringing up, of course, the 16 Republicans that have voted for voting rights in the past and are still currently in the Senate. So that was helpful. But again, if the problem is, is then what happened the next day? I had when I first commented on his speech the day of, I said, he's got to treat this like the last week of an election and go out there and not just talk about it once, but talk about it five times a day. You don't even have to talk about COVID. Have your experts, although their messaging is also kind of screwed up, but have your medical experts out there talking about (laughs) COVID and go ahead and just speak about voting rights leading up to the vote on Martin Luther King Day. But again, what have we heard? He's going to go talk to some Senate senators at lunch. Yeah, it doesn't show devotion to the it's issue. It's not. It's it's not strong. And I I I totally agree with the you know Lucy's point about this fifty one you know fifty one presidents running around. It's such a weak way to frame the entire speech. Everything. The point that you're trying to make. But I wonder if it doesn't actually you know, lower expectations for, you know, them actually getting something done because they're not going to get anything. Like, well, that was build the back point better of the stalled. Build, it, everybody sort of within the, you know, beltway realized build back better is not happening, right? And so instead of, keep mm-hmm. you know, keeping trying, make something happen here, which it, like just makes them continually look bad. They're like, okay, well, let's try voting rights now. But, you know, it's going to be hard. We got 51 presidents running around. It just almost feels like he's inoculating himself against criticism that they can't get it done. Well, I think that was the point of the speech was to give a fiery speech, say I really care about it, but then kind of be like, yeah, you know what? It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. The thing I don't understand, though, is after such a big defeat with Bill Back Better, why they would move into, and this is, again, political insider talking, but why would you move into another political defeat that you know has a deadline on it, which Democrats suck at meeting? And they're going to go do it on on Martin Luther King Day, and you're going to lose again. I, I I and I don't get it. And I want them to do well. I'm a Republican I do too. who wants them to succeed, <laughs> which is probably why I bang my head against the wall. I know these are the people who had Lin Manuel Miranda as their, <laughs> as their main. I mean, oh my God. Yes. It's like, why is this happening? Yes. Oh my God. We can do better than this. Ah. <laughs> uh, in the speech, uh, Biden also said that uh, election subversion laws were an attempt to turn the will of the voters into a mere suggestion. Um, this is something, obviously, I have railed on about uh, a lot, uh, about how not enough focus is actually... Too much focus being put on voting rights, which actually I know people don't like to hear this, but uh, but I'll say it again. Um, even with all of the changes proposed, would have an infinitesimally small effect on the actual um, election results. And so, great, it's sexy to talk about. It feels uh, morally righteous because it is, but actually, in terms of election outcomes, would barely make a dent. And the big, the giant elephant—no pun intended—in the room is all of these election subversion laws that are circulating at state legislative levels. And anyway, so he finally brings this up and 
I wonder uh, afterwards, <laughs> Mitt Romney accused Biden of going down the same tragic road taken by President Trump by casting doubt on the reliability of elections. There's something to untangle here. I'm a big Mitt Romney fan. I don't know how I feel about this. Um, so I want to hear what you guys think. Lucy, why don't you start? How should we be thinking about the differences between Trump's claims about election fairness and Biden's and Romney's reaction and framing of this, what I think is really important to do. It's highlighting the attempts to put in infrastructure that the people who will effectively overturn the will of the voters in the states. I think Romney was completely out of line. I'm so disappointed that he said that. I think it was a completely awful thing to say, and he's he's better than that. So super, super disappointing. These are, I don't, I don't think that these are analogous. I, I don't think that these are analogous. I mean, I think that if you're going to take issue with Democrats, um, per, uh, messaging around elections broadly or specifically, it's much easier to take issue with someone like Stacey Abrams, you know, things like, um, yeah, yeah like, yes, uh, the, the, you know, the whole, that whole thing, the whole thing. Yeah. Nina yeah. Turner, not totally. Joe Biden. That's not what's going on here. I think it's very bad of Mitt Romney. It makes me feel kind of even more despair than I normally do. By the way, now that Mike Madrid is like this, you know, everything's going great person, I feel like I have to just really bring the despair <laughs> to politicology. So, so I just, no, uh, but, but I think that I, I think that it makes me feel like, who are the Republicans we can even trust on this stuff if i mean i don't i don't trust republicans as far as i can throw them these days but we hope maybe that susan collins cares a little bit about this or whatever mitt romney is someone that i would have thought we could rely on to if not if not overtly or you know explicitly stand behind a piece of legislation that biden that hopes to get through on voting rights that he would at least show biden and democrats the respect that they deserve on this issue. So I don't think they're analogous. I think Romney was really, really out of line. And it's it's an attempt to really just kind of, I think, show, look, I'm I'm still on team team Republican and I'm such a I'm the new Maverick and I can I I'll I call it like I see it, but that's not what this is here. And so I think Mitt Romney should go find some better material. I think I would align myself completely with that sentiment as you express it, in particular, the disappointment, because he does come into this conversation with the most credibility possible, yes. being the only senator who has ever voted to convict a president of their own party ever in American history, the only one. And now, and so I just, I just expect more. Like he, he has, I want... I, I wanted more. I, wanted I agree different. with Lucy, too, that it was a way of saying, hey, I, look, I'm still a Republican and, you know, I'm, I'm still part of the team, guys. Yeah, he could have done it a lot better. I mean, he didn't. I, I, I agree with both of you. But like, why not come up with saying change it like we have to deal with this and we, we but we can't ignore states rights like there's a way of doing. There's a way to do it. And even if I don't agree with it, it doesn't have to be as offensive as trying to do the, you know, same as, you know, the, oh, they're just the same as this. And it's not, it, it was, it was a really lacking in intellectual conversation that we tend to want from Mitt Romney. But again, it shouldn't be surprising from him because he also over his time in the Senate has been 
want to make sure he's not always carrying the water of being anti-Trump. Yeah. So I yeah. think he just kind of saw this as a moment where it could be almost a throwaway. He probably, you know, it's not a historic moment. Yeah, I don't think, you know, it's not a vote. It was a statement. So he thought he could get away with it. Otherwise, I don't get it. Let me ask you this. Do you think he might? this might have been more of a reaction to the way he saw Biden's, uh, you know, punches being thrown at Trump? And I wonder, on a scale of one to 10, how unusual was it for a sitting president to go after a, his his a former president like that in a speech because that's well, not something right see what i mean if you go like the maybe it passed you look at donald yeah. trump no, not that oh, one but if you remove sorry remove <laughs> trump from the data Tuesday. set right <laughs> sure okay. yeah but sure of course, it is it is highly unusual biden fought that for as long as he could and mm-hmm. I think when he realized it was actually doing him no good politically and that some of his base was starting to turn from him, or at least they're not going anywhere else, but they may not be coming out. There are midterm elections that at least it was a way of kind of getting them riled up again. It was it was political theater, which sometimes a president has to do. There's no question that that Trump deserved it. But what I think Romney could have been responding to in that question is being called supporting Jim, uh, Jim Crow 2.0, you know, is he you know, saying he's a race? you know, basically saying anyone who votes against this is a race, you know, all of these things, which is fine, but he's also trying to court, I, I forget Mitt Romney. I don't know how Joe Manchin feels about being called, mm. you know, Jim Crow 2.0, but I think that's what it was retaliating against. Not, um, protect, saying, oh, well, you went too far on Donald Trump. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I think there are very legitimate, there are very legitimate arguments against federal voting rights legislation. And there are. And if you believe in federalism and you believe that there is not a good one size fits all solution for a lot of things, including voting and thinking about the fact that different states have different considerations, different populations, different, um, you know, my home state of Arizona, you have a huge population of people, you have residents who are here half the time, half are not, whatever. So you have a lot of mail-in voting, whatever. It, there are different things work for different places, urban and rural, different, you know, what the, that, that you can't be overly prescriptive. That I, I think is a completely defensible position on voting rights. I, I think that it is it's a it's a defensible position whole cloth on voting rights if you are saying in the same breath these are the reforms we want to see states implement right we want to see states implement reforms to ensure that we are maximizing ballot access and the truth is that republicans feel super uncomfortable and get the heebie-jeebies about this because when more people vote republicans tend to not do as well. So that's really the kind of dirty little secret that everyone is 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 dancing around. And it's not pleasant to to think about, but that's the thing that we have to start calling out to in the in the spirit of put it all out there and think the unthinkable. Yes. And if anyone wants to learn more about federalism <laughs> and and how and how republicans have built such a well-oiled machine uh 
Lucy uh, and I had a great conversation about this, and we just released this episode yesterday on the Politicology feed. And there's a terrific Politicology Plus segment about the infamous Wednesday meeting. And I won't say any more than that, but <laughs> go check that out. Let's talk about COVID. Dr. Anthony Fauci testified in the Senate Health Committee and was caught on a hot mic after Senator Roger Marshall questioned him about his finances. Here's that exchange. Dr. Fauci, according to Forbes, you have an annual salary in 2020 was $434,000. You oversee over $5 billion in federal research grants. As the highest paid employee in the entire federal government, Yes or no, would you be willing to submit to Congress and the public a financial disclosure that includes your past and current investments? After all, your colleague, Dr. Walensky, and every member of Congress submits a financial disclosure that includes their investments. I don't understand why you're asking me that question. My financial disclosure is public knowledge and has been so for the last 37 years or so, 35 years that well, the, I've been directing. The big tech giants are doing an incredible job of keeping it from being public. Uh, we'll continue to, when, to look for it. Where would we find it? All you have to do is ask for it. <laughs> I, I, you're so misinformed. It's extraordinary. Well, why am I, why am I misinformed? This is a huge issue. Wouldn't you agree with me that, that you have a, you see things before members of Congress would see what? them so that there's a, an air of appearance that, that maybe some shenanigans are going on. You know, I don't think that's, I assume that that's Senator, not the case. What I are you talking it's not about? not the case. My, my financial disclosures are public knowledge and have been so. You are getting amazingly wrong information. So uh, uh, I, I cannot find about? them. Our office cannot find them. Where would they be if they're public knowledge? Senator. Where? It is totally accessible to you if you want it. For the public. Is it accessible to the, to the public? public? Okay. To the public. Great. We look Senator forward to Marshall. reviewing it. You are totally incorrect. Well, we look Marshall, forward to the, reviewing it. Senator Marshall, Dr. Fauci has answered you. It is public information, and he's happy to give it to you if you would ask. Senator Moran. What a moron. Oh, my God. And Mike Madrid quote tweeted that and said, we are all Dr. Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, have you ever heard of such oh bad my God. staff work? I mean, oh just my not God. for nothing. Like, if, in fact, it was bad staff work, but I don't believe but, that. I think it's a stunt. I don't yeah. think right. it it's is bad staff work. It's not bad staff well, work. Okay, you think those people... U.S.gov. Okay, <laughs> we're good, right? <laughs> they all, all of these people who are uh, elected officials, people who are staff, they all are highly familiar with the Freedom of Information Act, which is the federal law that makes stuff like how much we pay federal employees public, which is how Senator Marshall knew how much Anthony Fauci made. <laughs> it's public record. This is this is he actually this is read the number. <laughs> and, yeah. Like how would we know that? Well you do know it. What are you talking about? The big tech giants? Like what are you talking about? It's first of all, it's on government websites you're talking about it right now and the thing that is also like so crass about marshall saying you know you fauci you make 400 and something thousand dollars a year yeah the guy is a doctor for <laughs> he's one like thing. You know the main doctor, doctor kind of marshall marshall but but also 
Senator Marshall is also a physician. He is also a doctor. Surely he knows that doctors make a lot of money and that Dr. Fauci, if he were in the private sector, is a person who would be making millions of dollars. And also, it's so nefarious. I I don't think it's bad stuff work. Oh, and you've gotten $5 billion in grants. That is to create an impression that like Anthony Fauci is personally personally taking in five billion dollars in well, grants it's just here, so no you're totally right sorry. you're totally right it's, it's not bad staff work it's it's it like this is a this is a stunt and it's a stunt because he knows he's feeding the machine of the right-wing misinformation system that fuels conspiracy theories about dr fauci and all kinds of things which is why susan i'm wondering if he like obvi- obviously dr fauci is so well qualified right to talk about covid and the government's response but because of the fire he's getting from Republicans and because of all of the, you know, the, the, the conspiracies about him, uh, like it's pretty clear. It's obvious to me that his, his credibility as a communicator, as an effective communicator, not his, not substantively, right. But effectively is gone. It's done. What, like he's no, what he seems to be no longer an effective communicator around COVID for this administration. So why? Is he still, why, why are they still using him? Ron, I have been thinking about this for the last month or so, a little differently before this testimony, obviously, although I will say he was completely effective when he called the guy a, a moron. <laughs> that was, that was clear and understood by all. Um, I have been wondering if Fauci, who is eminently qualified. I I do not want to take one single thing away from his qualifications, his ability to do his work. But like you said, as a communicator, he's been less than stellar. And frankly, he is a person who has now become political, not in his words, but what he represents. And I don't under, I'm not saying fire Fauci by any means, because he still has a lot to offer. But what he has to offer is not a spokesperson's role. He no longer can, you know, he was valuable because he spoke truth to power under Trump and wouldn't be silenced. But he, under his newfound freedom with the Biden administration, frankly, has has been a little too free, not in giving misinformation, I'm not suggesting that at all, but maybe opining on things like, why is the head of the CDC, why are doctors talking about science and the economy? Like, I don't want to hear that from, from Anthony Fauci. I need to know how many days am I supposed to isolate? Now, I, the Biden administration should feel free saying we've balanced everything. And you know, like we know taking an aspirin could be dangerous at some times for people. But on balance, we approve of these guidelines. And then they could say why? Because of the economy, et cetera. But Fauci, as as a message deliverer, is is too polarizing, and I think he should be continue to do his work and let others speak. Of course, the only other problem is is some of the other people who are coming out to speak on behalf of the government on COVID have not been yeah. stellar either. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's tainted. That's how I see it. They should stop using him. 
and it's not necessarily to his own because he created no, it. But it's just the environment. I, I I totally agree. It's the environment. You have to you have to use the most effective tools in your toolbox. And right now, he's just he's not the right person for that job anymore. Well, we're all going to get bashed yeah. on this one. I know, I know we are, but <laughs> I, I, I I don't think anyone will understand this conversation to to, to be that you know we don't think Fauci is eminently qualified to do the job. It's just that. The administration needs somebody who the Republicans can't weaponize immediately. That's that's the problem here. Uh, last week, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky appeared on ABC News and noted that 75% of vaccinated people who were dying from the coronavirus had four or more comorbidities. Then on Sunday, Fox's Brett Baer asked her about a popular argument in right-wing circles, that many of the classified COVID deaths are dying with COVID rather than of COVID. And Walensky said that they're following Omicron closely and those data will be forthcoming. Her exchange was picked up by Fox News hosts and the RNC, suggesting that people who were testing positive for COVID were dying from other underlying issues and not the virus. And this, of course, came several after several messaging missteps from the CDC. We also learned last week that Walensky has been meeting privately with Democratic media consultant Mandy Grunwald to improve her communication skills. Lucy, how should we be thinking about the struggles to message COVID policies in both the Trump and Biden administrations? Well, look, the CDC is problematic and has been in both administrations. And I think that the CDC itself needs some needs some reforming. Uh, and I think that Scott Gottlieb, who's a, a former FDA commissioner and, and uh, has re- recently written a book around the COVID business, uh, has really highlighted a lot of the reform that needs to happen at the CDC across the board. I think that Walensky, I don't, I think that some of her missteps are not as big of missteps as people are saying. And and I think that the criticism of Walensky's 75% comment, which was that she she said, you know, 75% of people who are vaccinated and are dying from COVID are people who have four or more comorbidities. And that's very good news. In other words, it's good news that if you're healthy and vaccinated, you don't need to worry about getting COVID and dying, right? That is true. I mean, she's right. She's right about that. That is that is good news. And and it is kind of ironic that uh, that the right, which has busy has busied itself by saying things like COVID is not COVID is not um, worrisome if you're healthy and and it's only the very sick and and old and people who were basically going to die anyway are simultaneously attacking her for essentially saying something about how being vaccinated really gives you a lot of protection. And so I I think it is, I mentioned that specific anecdote because it really shows that she cannot win. And I think that it's important that we not play into the Fox News and and broader right-wing machinery that that she herself is a bad spokesperson because these things are going to be clipped and misused any and all which ways for the purposes of the right-wing disinformation machine. So I'm interested in in other types of reforms that need to happen at the CDC, including things like how mass guidance changes all the time, how guidelines change all the time in a way that seems to go a little bit beyond just like, well, we know more now. So it, it, it doesn't seem like we're just in sort of evolution of knowledge. It's more like throwing spaghetti up against the wall. But the thing that I'm least concerned about, frankly, is Rochelle Walensky's 
interview style. <laughs> I must say, I must say. Yeah, Susan, what? It, but I, go I ahead, have, please. I, I just have to add something that's really, really important for context. Let's not forget that what she was criticized for was in part a problem with ABC's in editing of that interview where they cut out, where she clarified, I was thinking about 40 seconds or 20 or 40 seconds of the interview where she clarified that. So ABC put out an interview that was edited that didn't show what she was fully saying. And the CDC had to come back and push for that. So she may not, she, I, I happen to think she's not the most effective communicator in the fact that she doesn't always speak in scientific terms, like tell me what the difference between quarantine and, and, and self-isolating yeah, means because they I don't know the tend difference. to use it because exactly. But in this particular case, the, the, a lot falls on the media and I, it was not done with evil. This is not like a Fox editing, you know, thing. So I, I, I do want to be clear about that since we're talking about a specific instance. Well, so what, what is your read on, uh, the CDC bringing in somebody like uh, Grunwald to train her, to train Walensky. Media training's great as a media trainer. I would say <laughs> that. Um, and it, it's very helpful. But again, it goes to, it's one thing to train someone how to handle these conversations. It's another thing, though, when you have to decide what you're sharing with the public and the opining that goes along with it. There, CDC is under a lot of pressure to be the face of decision-making of the administration, where it should be the face of the science that the administration is making decisions from. And it's a nuanced difference, but that is one that should be made because they're asking the CDC, again, like, you know, if it's one thing, if they say, well, we want people back at work because, or they're talking about testing in schools because they, they want, they, they looked at the um, issue of mental health for a child versus the time being out of school or the effect that, or the potential that COVID would have on a child. It's another thing to talk about needing kids in school so parents can go to work. That's not their job. Their job is to give you the information. It's the administration's job to say, we are making these decisions in part on the science and in part on the fact that we, we live in the real world. And that that's not media training. That's that's decision making. <laughs> well, that, that's also in a way that's also a piece of that is the media's job to report aspects of the ongoing pandemic that are the context that that the general public needs to evaluate statements from spokespeople. So, for example, a really core com a piece of information that really clears up all of the questions of the are you dying with COVID or because of COVID is, you know, you can split hairs over that. But every time we see a spike in COVID, we also see a spike in excess deaths. So that's just facts. That is that has just been facts across the board. So the idea like these people were going to die anyway, maybe we've just, you know, sped up their deaths and next year we'll see that there are fewer deaths. We've been in this for two years. That's not true. We can see there are excess deaths. So, so attribute those deaths to, you know, cause of death. That sure, debate that all day long. But obviously the differentiator between those deaths now and those deaths in say 2019, 2018 is 
we're in an ongoing global pandemic. So that is also information that, you know, there are like a few reporters and a few writers who have really been good on this. I think Derek Thompson at The Atlantic is an example of a person who calls out hygiene theater, but also calls out right-wing disinformation. Super good. But that's not even really getting addressed in the mainstream. It's the media. It's all this sort of dancing around these these gotcha questions. And then, as you say, not presenting the information to folks. But it's also about who's presenting it. Again, we got the media's reporting um, cases of COVID in hospitals. Okay. The hospital presents the information and the press reports it. That's great. But what happens when we find out that in New York City, for example, 47% of those COVID hospitalizations are only directly related to COVID. And the others are people who were admitted for the broken arm who also happens to have COVID, yet they are being classified. So it's the media's job to untangle that. But again, I just think when we're talking about public health and public safety, we have to hold the people who have that information on are responsible for the science and the data to a higher level. Again, instead of trying to parse and decide what we need to know and how it affects you, instead of saying, here's the information and Obviously, you're going to make a decision. Now, in vaccination, to me, it's clear. But in other things, there are things that need to be noticed and highlighted and people held responsible. And the one thing I take away from this COVID pandemic is that most medical professionals are not good spokespeople. Yeah, that's for sure. Actually, (laughs) you know, zooming out a little bit, Susan, that reminds me of a conversation we had about a month ago uh, where we were talking about a group of PR strategists who are advising climate scientists, climate activists. And I like, this is very similar to that. I wonder if you think the administration, the CDC needs to take a similar approach to teaching health experts how to better communicate or like, are we just, are we just too far past, you know, the, the, the pale here? Well, in in this particular case, I I think we are a little too far down the line. And by the way, I don't just add the the people who are healthcare professionals who are speaking on behalf of their organizations. I mean, all the talking heads on TV, because unfortunately, the, 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 the anchors ask them a question. So what do you think will happen in the next three weeks? Yeah. Questions to 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 which they are not equipped. Yeah. They don't know. know. And And they're supposed to make it up. Exactly. It's an unfair question. So they can say, well, and they do say, well, we don't know yet, but what we can speculate is, well, we don't need any more. We don't need any more speculation. Just say you don't know and move on. That would be a public service. When I first started specifically in communications, I remember getting a request for a publicly traded company. And I was speaking with my business partner at the time. He's like, we can't do it. I was like, why? He's like, it's so specialized in what you can say and what you can reveal. And it's, it's really a detailed oriented thing. That's back then when we cared about, you know, doing corporate, there was, there was corporate responsibility, (laughs) but it kind of makes me think it's the same thing. We need people who are specialized, who understand the issue in, in, in public relations I mean, I'm very careful to take on a client and speak about certain things unless I can train the expert to stay focused on it um, 
or just keep my statements very, very brief because you do need that skill set, especially now when 24 seven, we have medical professionals talking on TV and that is, it's our public health, it's our public safety. And yes, climate change is really, really important, but this at one point was life and death and immediate life and death. And we still didn't have clear communications coming. On Sunday, South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds said that the 2020 presidential election was fair. Republican South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds, I should clarify, said that the 2020 presidential election was fair. And this set off a meltdown from the former guy. In a statement on Monday, Trump asked if Rounds was crazy or just stupid and said Trump will never endorse this jerk again. Quote, never endorse this jerk again. Senior Republicans in the Senate backed Rounds up after the attack by Trump. Minority leader Mitch McConnell said, I think Senator Rounds told the truth about what happened in the 2020 election, and I agree with him. Other senators who came to Rounds' uh, uh, defense were Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, John Thune of South Dakota, and Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia. Rounds had told local papers that he looked into allegations of voter fraud and didn't see anything that could have changed the results of the election throughout the last year. But Sunday was the first time he said it out loud to a national audience. On Wednesday, he was calling for other Republicans to do the same. He told the AP, quote, if we want to keep the trust and gain the trust of more individuals that are wondering, we have to probably say it a little bit louder and in more places that many of us normally either aren't invited to talk or have chosen not to get into the fray, end quote. Whew, this was a surprise, um, a happy surprise. Does it change anything for Trump now that McConnell has come out pretty strongly saying the 2020 election wasn't rigged. Are the battle lines now drawn? Where do you think this goes, Lucy? Well, I don't think that it changes as much as we would hope because there has already been this ongoing uh, turf war between Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. And you are even seeing this play out in Republican primaries, for instance, in Ohio, in the Republican primary for the Senate seat between Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance and a few others. There's a there's all of these candidates want Donald Trump's endorsement and they're all just falling over themselves to get it. And yet, despite falling over themselves to get it, most of them have been loath to oppose McConnell, which is what Trump wants them to do. And and even in Alabama, where Mo Brooks, who we all know is a complete insane person, is running for the, the Republican primary in that Senate seat, Mo Brooks has has refused to say that he would oppose McConnell. Uh, to be to be uh, retained as as leader, and so I, I think that it it is it's not bad news. I think it's less significant news uh, than we might think. I think it's it's also worth noting that Rounds didn't just come out saying the 2020 election was fairly decided. He did it in conjunction with a media appearance around January 6th, and that is really really significant. But I do think that there's a difference between saying that you think that the, the election was decided fairly and the thing that is important to me, for instance, which is to say the election was decided fairly 
and Trump's ongoing behavior about the results of the 2020 election are disqualifying and make him unfit for office. And and so I think in general, some of this is uh, is a case of too little too late. It's good to have people saying the election was decided fairly, although we've really ratcheted down our expectations of Republicans. Happy reminder of that. But the fact that even Republicans who are willing to take flack from Trump on this will not say that they won't support him again or that he is unfit or that the party needs to go a, a new direction. They're really just saying, like, let's not emphasize this. And by the way, I think it was decided fairly. So I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but no, I don't think that this will be very significant over the long term. Okay. Nev- and just for Go some ahead. comic relief, yeah. which is basically whenever I say the name Lindsey Graham. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. There's our comic relief. So I said it. But he on Wednesday basically came out with a statement, which others are starting to follow, which is, I will not support a leader of the Senate that does not support Donald Trump. So okay. that was basically the Trump team trying yeah. to change the we conversation. To- but then again, it was Lindsey Graham. It was Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Lindsey Graham is, we need to start calling him Mr. Thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> I mean, bye. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Just, just can't, can't no, get enough. He, he can't. That is a big Pandora's box for another time that Lindsey Graham. Well, I said, if we're not talking about Texas, oh. then we should be talking about Lindsey Graham. <laughs> okay. I take, I take, uh, I take, every, I take, I take what you say, Lucy. However, don't you think this is an, an escalation of uh, what we have previously seen from Republicans? And, and maybe it isn't uh, out of the realm of possibility that the next, the next stage of, of escalation here will be, uh, and if this continues, Donald Trump should not only not be, you know, he's not fit for public office, but also has no place in leadership in this party. Don't you think we could eventually get there if this if this fight continues to escalate? Well, I think that the fight is not going to escalate because Trump has learned a little bit in his in his um, in his year out of office when to pull back. And so I think that Trump probably will not continue to escalate the Mitch McConnell, um, fight, um, and, and is going to find a way to thread a new needle. Um, so I don't think the threat gets, I don't think the threat gets less real. I also think that if it did escalate in the way that you're describing, I think that what would, what, what would be brought in to kind of fill the void of Donald Trump is just a more sanitized version of Donald Trump. It would be a Ron DeSantis or a Josh Hawley, someone who has someone who has more discipline. And and um so so I I just I feel this this is coming. My my feelings about this, I feel just very uneasy about all Republicans right now. I mean I always have, but I just I cannot I I feel like any attempts to who are they who are they trying to who's Mike Brown's trying to win over? I mean it's it's not he's not up this year. Um and it's certainly not the Republican base, right? It's not ba- the Republican voter base, because as we know, and we talked about this last week, some an insane number of Republican primary voters believe that Donald Trump's lie that maybe Joe Biden is not the rightfully elected president. And so in that way, 
if this is just this is just sort of the 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 rage the 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 how the Republican Party operates, but essentially, if it is well, we need to start. We need to come up to the line to cover our bases to show that there are cooler heads that are trying to prevail here, and that we want it to be more like the way it used to be, and we believe in decorum and all of that. That's my big fear with with th- these kind of little media tours of people of people like Mike Rounds that it it does not you, they come right up to the line like yes yeah add a boy and then it's not and therefore Donald Trump must never have a role in this party ever again yeah they don't ever <laughs> say that because they prefer the devil they no. know the defeated devil they know than the devil they don't and yes. you know right the devil they made a deal with anyway. But to that point, just so you know, this is breaking news that's just coming out to talk about the influence of the former guy, probably, is that the RNC has sent a letter to all presidential candidates who are running on the Republican line to skip the established commission on presidential debates schedule. So they are saying do not participate in any of the debates. Wow. Uh, even by the commission. And that's a letter that the RNC is Whoa. sending to. So think about that. So what establishment do we think they're going to get back to? The wow. F- that is that- a giant fuck you to the entire like institution. <laughs> wow. Now, of course, there's, there's issues. I mean, there's other issues with it, but I mean, it is a clear influence of Donald Trump's that he still has on the party. And that he's basically saying "f you" to the establishment of political rules, rules, norms. And basically, rules. N- none yeah. of that matters anymore. It is, it and is it's the not D- an R or a D thing. He's just like no, th- like there's this commission, a pillar of our electoral process that we that don't we believe is legitimate anymore. Tear it down. So. It, so Lucy's right. It's all on, that's a long way to get to Lucy's. It right. Usually ends there. Uh, <laughs> are, so you so you think Rounds is right on messaging strategy for Republicans, Susan? Like, do, what what do you think? What do you see as the electoral upside for someone like Rounds saying the election wasn't stolen? What does he get out of this? I, I actually think he just gets to look at at himself in the mirror. Do so you think this is a conscience um, play? Yeah, the, I think this is just a play to decency and calling it right. I don't think there was any real agenda he has. He's not one to, you know, as insiders talk about him. They were like, wow, that's amazing. But then like, wow, where did that come from? Like from him? Like it, it just didn't, it didn't have certain gravitas and that's not to knock him. But I, I do think he's sending a signal to people that it's OK to be decent. Um, and yet. To Lucy's point, what did Trump do? Oh, I won't endorse that guy in five years or I won't endorse that jerk. So he's clearly saying, if you step out against me, you're not going to win your primary. I could imagine there being advanced coordination between Rounds and McConnell teams on this. Like, yeah, I'll stick my neck out there, but I want you to back me up. Yeah, and it's good. By the way, it's the best. The crazy thing is, is for Republicans to take to to win the, the Senate. And to take back the House, even though that seems more likely, the best thing they could do is not talk about the last election. All Mitch McConnell wants to say is like Biden's the president. And we know that because he sits, he's there. So just say he's the president. That's all you got to do. You don't have to, you don't have to talk about the election, nothing. Just say, you know, he's, he is, he is in fact the president and move on because 
without that, it starts to get those those fights going and people stay home. And he's all I'm going to say is Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Georgia. You know, Mm -hmm. look at what happened in the suburbs there. Mm -hmm. So. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you are watching under the radar. Lucy, what do you have for us? So this week, uh, Senators uh, Ossoff and Kelly, John Ossoff and Mark Kelly, two newcomers to the Senate, introduced a bill that would ban stock trading by members of Congress. Um which I think is a great idea, and we should all get behind it. Uh, there have been similar versions of this introduced by the House, including uh, in the House, including by Abigail Spanberger, Congresswoman from Virginia, whom we're all pretty familiar with, I think. Um, but it, this is really interesting in part because Josh Hawley has also said this week that he's going to introduce a similar bill, um, and and under the Ossoff Kelly version, members of Congress would have to forfeit their right to to be involved in in trading stocks while they're in office, as would their spouses and dependent children. And we know that this has been a huge problem. I believe it's a huge problem, as we've seen folks like um, Kelly Loeffler uh, and Richard Burr profiting even from the information that they were getting about COVID ahead of the pandemic to then go turn around and, and enrich themselves. It's really interesting. The story has highlighted that only 10 members of Congress have blind trust of what happens with their stock trades while they're while they're in Congress, which is a kind of astounding number. And this is, we really want to just pile on and make people mad in this episode. This is one issue where Nancy Pelosi, America's Nona, has not been good. And as recently as last month, she said, well, it's a free market, so we should all get to keep trading trading stocks. And that that is not Nancy Pelosi's best luck. Mm-hmm. So I hope that these bills get traction because it's it's really important to root out corruption. And it's rare that members of Congress actually seriously give, give uh, oxygen to bills where they're regulating corruption among themselves. So that's a, that's a bright spot for sure. I also have a bill that I hope gets some traction as my under the radar story this week. Um, but I'm a little bit conflicted about it because it's introduced by Tom Emmer, Republican, uh, in the House. Uh, but I think it's a really good thing, and I'm excited to see. I'm excited to see it spark a conversation. The bill is uh, uh, basically one that would prohibit the Fed from issuing a central bank digital currency directly to individuals. What is a central bank digital currency, you might ask? I've talked about these before. It's a CBDC. This is what China is doing. Uh, to transform their monetary system, which is basically to issue programmable money, cryptocurrency, a digital currency, but that is issued by the central bank of the government directly to the people, which gives them a an, an unfettered uh, level of access to every penny that you spend and where it goes and what what you do with it. Um, it 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 creates the opportunity for basically unlimited surveillance and. This is in, this is this is important as the entire sort of emerging financial system matures and blockchain technology continues to work its way through our financial system. Um, 
and we know that the Fed is, you know, actively considering, uh, or they're they're supposed to be releasing a white paper soon on whether or not they would consider a CBDC of their own. Um, and Tom Emmer's bill effectively says, uh, "No, you can't do this." Um, and I just want to quote from from a couple of his uh, tweets because I think this he makes the point really well. As other countries like China develop CBDCs that fundamentally omit the benefits and protections of cash. It is more important than ever to ensure the United States digital currency policies protect financial privacy, maintains the dollar's dominance, and cultivates innovation. CBDCs that fail to adhere to these three basic principles could enable an entity like the Federal Reserve to mobilize itself into a retail bank to collect personally identifiable information on users and track their transactions indefinitely. Not only does this CBDC model raise single point of failure issues, leaving Americans' financial information vulnerable to attack, but it could be used as a surveillance tool that Americans should never be forced to tolerate from their own government. So I hope this sparks a very rich debate uh, um, in the House and elsewhere about uh, about the risks of going down the road of, uh, you know, China's model of a CBTC if we, if we do in fact create one, but this new era of potentially programmable money where if the fed wanted to, like if, if they did this, they would have the power to turn off the money in your bank account, literally, or set an expiration date for the money in your bank account. Uh, it, it is, um, uh, it's, it's chilling to me really anyway. So that's what I'm watching. Susan. All right, so mine's really dorky. Um, oh, no, no, but you're gonna you're gonna dork me? Okay. Well, no, that's very that's very no, that's exciting to me. I find that really interesting, and and, and mine's kind of just, you know, I don't know, budget stuff. But so I was reading an article in the Washington Post, and it was talking about how earmarks are back. Oh. House earmarks are back, baby. Right. So you have over two hundred members of the House looking for earmarks, apparently uh, over a hundred, um, a hundred, I think uh, near around a hundred Republicans or something like that. were kind of interested in it. And then 16 Republican senators are also saying like, show me a little money. But what kind of really got me here was another story that I've been hearing a lot. And that's on the state level. State governments are flush with cash. Flushed. They can't spend the COVID money quick mm. enough. Most of them have not spent their 2020 COVID money. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I was supportive of, of what Trump did as far as in, in the House and the Senate getting money out to people. I, I was fine with that. I, I understand it was sloppy at times, but it was essential. But now people, states are looking for more money. And I'm the issue at hand is the states have to ask the federal government if they can now use these COVID dollars for other things. Oh, So like a school, which was supposed to get all ready for, for COVID this fall and do, you know, new um, exhaust systems and all that. They didn't because we were going to be fine. And now they want to know if other projects can count. They can use that COVID money that's earmarked because they they have nothing to spend it on <laughs> or 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 other municipalities are like well we got this covid money to like respond to these concerns but can we kind of pretend it's related to a bridge we want to do so, <laughs> the covid I, bridge I, the covid I, park <laughs> everybody go outside because it's better than being inside there it's related to covid 
<laughs> so I do think we're going to, it's an election year and it seems to me an issue that's kind of ripe for Republicans is to say, where's all the money? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, and demand some accountability for yeah. it. Yeah. Why so it it's a combination spent? of like, why are they asking for earmarks and yet their states are flush with that, cash? That's interesting. Lucy, do you want to do the, like a TLDR on why earmarks are actually a good thing or can be a good thing? Because I bet our listeners think that's counterintuitive. I don't disagree with that, just for the record. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I suppose earmarks are a good are a good thing sometimes, but it's it's also if you really want to understand how earmarks work and how pork works, look at how in something like the defense defense spending, you can track back the the big spending that grows every year at ridiculous clips and unnecessarily to little deals that gold doled, doled out. Defense is the best example to every single member of Congress's district. So over time, you create a culture where everybody, everybody wants a wants a little piece of the pie. Yeah, except it's <laughs> That's not Greece. what you wanted me to say. No, well, I mean, what I was what, what I was thinking you might say, maybe we disagree about this, is that it is grease for the wheels that have stopped turning in Congress. It is it is a form of an antidote to gridlock because without with it, it 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 facilitates the self-interested trading and deal making that actually fuels progress in Congress. That's how shit gets done. That's how the sausage gets made and nobody likes it. But if with with earmarks, you actually have things to trade uh, where you can get some of what you want in exchange for a, a little, you know, a little thing that somebody else wants. But the absence, the banning of earmarks actually has made that very difficult and has slowed things down in in uh, at the federal level. That's what I was going to say. That's a, that's that's absolutely true. And in contrast, programs where we see block granting, it it encourages spending on on things that maybe don't need to be spent. And and just like you know, people and families know at different times, different members of the family have have um, have more. Uh, significant needs. Like if little Billy is taking up ice hockey, he's probably going to need hundreds of dollars in ice hockey equipment, even though, you know, little Susie uh, isn't doing a sport that isn't doing a sport that semester. And so she doesn't need the the hundreds of dollars. We don't just then buy her. You say, yeah, go spend this on Barbies. Right. It's sort of, it's the same, it's the same concept. So you are right about, you are right about that for sure. Yeah. Lucy said I'm right about something. (laughs) Earmarks have been changed. You're right about so much. (laughs) (laughs) Just, just so we know though, earmarks, the process has been changed um, with them coming back in the house than it was um, prior to them being banned. So there's a little, actually a certain amount of money that it's one to 2% of the budget. They can only ask for up to two projects or three projects. I'm not sure. So it's a little more, um, there's constrained. More there's place. more guardrails. It's like you go to the casino, here's yeah. your chips, sir. And like do with one of them what you wish. Right. I, but again, I'm just looking at this and thinking like these states have so much cash on hand. Like you can't, yeah, I spoke yeah. to like a small, the, the mayor of a small town and they're like, we can't spend this in two wow. years. <laughs> like, wow. And, and so they asked for these exemptions That's and it's, it's kind of pathetic. That's fascinating. So, all right. I can't wait to go to the after party, AKA politicology plus we have a really good piece to discuss, <laughs> but before we do, where can everybody find you on the internet? Lucy. I'm on Twitter at Lucy M Caldwell. Susan. I'm on Twitter at Del Percio S. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. We'll talk to you later. 
thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.